Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War, Episode 6. Sir Redverse Buller, the Commander-in-Chief of British Forces in South Africa, sailed into Cape Town Harbour on the Donato Castle on 31st of October, 1899, with his war horses, polo sticks and a bicycle, and a young Winston Churchill, a reporter, in tow. The citizens of Cape Town, at least the English-speaking, greeted General Buller in the multitudes. We'll hear about Buller in greater detail in a future podcast when we look at the leaders involved on either side. But suffice to say, he had some sympathy for the Boers, so much so that Lansdowne, his commanding officer, was suspicious of his motivation at times. However, Buller was an experienced soldier and respected other soldiers. He'd fought in the China War of 1860, the Red River Expedition in Canada, the Ashanti Campaign in 1873, the Zulu War of 1879, and the First Boer War. He was stoic and had the bearing of a British Victorian officer. He was also personally brave, having won the Victoria Cross. But he had fatal flaws, although he looked outwardly calm. Buller was indecisive and also given to panic attacks. He was a practical soldier but had no experience in commanding large formations. His orders were simple. Take his entire army north along the railway line through De Aar to Bloemfontein and then to Pretoria. Defeat the Boers. But he vacillated. Lieutenant General White's position in Ladysmith unnerved him, so he decided to divide his 47,000-strong force and move on to relieve Ladysmith instead of driving directly north up the existing railway line as ordered. In Ladysmith, nearly a thousand kilometres away north of Cape Town, things were falling apart. Ladysmith is a curious town and is named after Juana Maria de los Dolores de Leon Smith, also known as Ladysmith the Spanish wife of Sir Harry Smith, who was the British governor of the Cape in the 1850s. Harry Smith had saved Maria de los Dolores from rampaging English troops during the Peninsular War of 1812 and they were married days after meeting. She became the icon of the troops because instead of allowing herself to be sent off to live with her husband's family in England while he fought in Spain, she remained with him throughout the rest of that war, even accompanying the baggage train, sleeping in the open and the field of battle, riding freely among the troops and sharing all the privations of campaigning. Her beauty, courage, sound judgment and amiable character made her the darling of the troops. So, to remember her, South Africa named an entire town after Ladysmith that was, ironically, to become synonymous with English pain and suffering. And in Ladysmith, the besieged commander, Lieutenant General White, had confused initiative with action and his strategic thinking was long gone. The modern idea that a field force is required to remain so by breaking out of a siege and then destroy its opponents or at least maintain its lines of communications had crossed his mind. So retreat then south of the Chigella as General Buller had demanded. Instead, Lieutenant General White was like a boxer punched drunk on the ropes and looking to deliver a Hail Mary, a single knockout blow against General Hubert's army by attacking him instead of breaking out. Lieutenant General White was not to know that General Joubert was not planning to attack Pienemaritzburg, which was 150 kilometers south of Ladysmith. It was at this point that General White committed his most grievous error, something that became known as the single greatest strategic mistake of the entire Anglo-Boer War. In fact, the British were to surrender the most men in this upcoming battle since the Napoleonic Wars almost 100 years before. Lieutenant General White's intelligence units reported that the Boers were like locusts on the ground around Ladysmith. 
the Free State and Transvaal Commandos had joined up. After some intelligence gathering, the Boers were reported to be holding a position centred on Pepworth Hill, around four miles to the north of Ladysmith. General White wanted to send his two infantry brigades to storm the hill. For several days, White had observed with some anxiety this massing of Boer commandos on Pepworth Hill, that was to the north, as well as Long Hill and Bulwana to the east. White first wished to attack on Sunday 29th October to catch the Boers off guard as they always stopped fighting and went to church. But his men were sure that doing so would actually focus the Boers' minds and anger as they believed they had a covenant with God and this would be a highly motivated reason for them to then fight back and defeat the British. To argue now about whether they were correct or not is moot. But the plan was shifted to Monday. White was trying one of the most difficult battle manoeuvres though. Three different forces moving independently with crucial timing and at night. Even in the 21st century, using three different brigades in three different areas at night would test a modern commander with all the software and computers and night vision goggles. Colonel Geoffrey Grimwood took the 1st Brigade of Leicester's, Dubliners and the 1st Battalion of the 60th. They had just retreated from Dundee, as we heard, with General Yule, so were mentally really not ready for this clash. Their purpose was to dislodge Lucas Mayer's commandos from Long Hill, which was to the northeast of Ladysmith. Then simultaneously, a second column, the 7th Brigade, consisting of four infantry battalions, cavalry and artillery, would strike the Boers on Pepworth Hill in a containment action. Hamilton commanded the 2nd Brigade, which included the three battalions he'd led to victory in Ilanslachta, the Devons, Manchesters and Gordons, and both brigades had their own artillery and cavalry. Colonel French, the dashing but erratic cavalry officer, famous for bedding his colonel's wife, or at least apparently, would protect Grimwood's right flank. Then a third infantry column of two battalions and artillery under Colonel Carlton were to march seven miles, it's around 14 kilometres, to Nicholson's Neck. This plan was clearly far too ambitious, featuring three different columns doing this in tandem and independently at times in territory that was alien and at night. An artillery barrage to soften up the ground, a flank attack launched at Pepworth Hill, capture enemy guns, cavalry round up the Boers from behind, it was a field day formula, or field night formula. Except for one thing, the Boers were far more flexible than the Indian and Sudanese troops the English were used to fighting. Colonel White's night march plan was to strike further past Pepworth toward Nicholson's Neck, four miles behind. So, at 11 that night, 30th of October, Lieutenant Colonel Carlton, the commanding officer of the Irish Fusiliers, and who was selected for the difficult night trek past Pepworth Hill, took off with 200 pack mules and over a 1,000 men. At midnight, Grimwood's brigade, comprising a 12-kilometre-long column of men, guns, mules, horses, carts, trundled off along the Halpmacar road to the east. After him came Hamilton's brigade, but headed up by General White himself. It would take less than three hours for the entire plan to start unravelling from that moment. For, as the brigade moved forward, a soldier belonging to the Gloucester Regiment appeared in the dark and was brought to Lieutenant General White. Apparently, Carlton's column had suffered a major setback. His entire group of pack mules had stampeded and vanished into the dark, taking all the guns and the spare ammunition. Further out, Grimwood discovered to his horror that the Boers had slipped away under the cover of night and French's cavalry, on his own side, had simply disappeared. 
While it's all very well to think in hindsight, so many things were wrong already that most commanders would have called off this attack at about this point. It was three in the morning and things were dishevelled. White had no idea really where the Boers were. His intelligence said they were on Pepworth Hill, but he had had enough experience of fighting these mobile soldiers already to know that they could move in minutes and could be miles away. And they were. When he and his staff reached a low hill just before Pepworth, he ordered a halt and then expected as dawn brightened the sky to hear Grimwood's guns blasting at the Boers. At first light, Colonel Grimwood was waiting for his mules, which had bolted. He didn't know this, but his commander White did. Why didn't he send Grimwood a message? However, you have to realise that this was in the days before radio calls. Why had White, though, not made sure Grimwood knew of the gaps in his support? Not only that, but Grimwood realised that half his brigade hadn't kept up, and even worse, French's cavalry were still missing, and when they were found, they were in the wrong position. He didn't have long to muse, however, for at that moment, 4,000 Boer Morses of the Transvaal Boers opened fire simultaneously, raking his flank. The shock was now complete. He and Commander White thought the Boers were ahead on Pepworth, but he didn't realise a second group of Boers had outflanked him on his right. The commander of the group of Boers was a young Louis Boerter, who was later to become Prime Minister of South Africa. Another of the ironies here, Boerter's wife was an Irish woman. He was about to deal the Irish fusiliers, though, one of their worst defeats in their military history. The withering fire and Boerter's dramatic intervention provoked a chain of tactical military developments which threw White's plan into confusion. Grimwood ordered his men to wheel right and then take cover. At that point, the artillery opened up, but at Long Hill, upon which there were no Boers. Finally, a sustained gunnery duel broke out between the Boers, who'd brought up their Long Tom cannon, which, as we know, the British intelligence thought they couldn't move. White was now obliged to use Hamilton's battalions to support Grimwood, whose units were in disarray by mid-morning. The 8th Brigade was withdrawn at midday. Commander Reitz, with the Transvaal commander, writes, a great spectacle was developing. From where we held the sweep of the hills, we looked down as from an amphitheatre at every moment of the troops on the plain below. Infantry hurrying forward in successive waves, guns being galloped up, and all the bustle and activity of a battle shaping before our eyes. But now, what with the thunder of the British guns and of our own, the crash of bursting shells and the din of thousands of rifles, there was a volume of sound unheard in South Africa before. And it also grew hotter. The sun climbed in a cloudless sky. White realised that things were going wrong. The mules which had gone AWOL began showing up with the cannons, but where was Carlton and the Irish Fusiliers? Well, the first few hours of Carlton's expedition at the head of the Irish Fusiliers had been uneventful that night, devoid of maps, but aided by a gentleman farmer called Mr Hyde. From the area, from Nicholson's Neck, he and his 1,100 men had marched all night. He spotted a hill then called Trengula, a large hill, which Mr Hyde believed was crucial to the outcome of victory. It's also known as Hogsback, just by the bar. So Carlton ordered Trengula secured. The fusiliers led a single file to the top but were hopelessly exposed because their mules carrying spare ammunition had bolted. They only had 20 rounds each. Worse, halfway up, one of the troops dislodged a large rock which rolled down causing pandemonium. The British troops then fired at nothing in particular, alerting the Boers to their movements. 
Denise Reitz, who was nearby with the Boer commander, noted in his diary, All remained quiet until three in the morning, when out of the darkness there came the sound of shots, followed by confused shouting and tramping. But as the noise died down, we let things be. Shortly before daybreak, when it was growing light, two large mules came trotting up from below, and on bringing the animals to a halt, we found that one of them carried a back barrel of a mountain gun, and the other a leather box containing shell ammunition. One of the most significant Boer commanders of the war was also at that battle, Christian de Vette. He was watching in the morning as Carlton and his officers tried to prepare the hill for an attack. Also close to the scene was the Heilbronn commander under Commandant Mentz, and behind them a group of St. Afrikaans police called Zarps, the same Zarps who'd shot dead the large eightlander the previous year and focused the hate of the English-speaking miners in Johannesburg on Kruger's government. By now the sun was high in the sky and the British were suffering on the copy. One of the British soldiers by the name of Rice records, Although we could not see a single Boer, the enemy kept pounding us from every side. As time went by, their rifle fire became terrific, and our men began to drop. We tried putting the best marksmen on to volley firing, but that did not seem to shift the Boers. Then I was hit in the ankle and compelled to lie down. My sergeant piled big stones around me to give me some sort of shelter, but the bullets were pinging all around. Christian de Vett had them pinned down. Eventually, they had to surrender. Carlton ordered the bugler to blow the ceasefire, but the poor man was so terrified that only a gush of air was produced. Finally, a thin, wavering sound was heard, and the battle for the copy was over. The story of this surrender is clouded in controversy, probably because of just how embarrassing it was for the British. As I said, they were about to see the biggest number of troops captured by an enemy force since Napoleon. Christian de Vette disputes that they'd run extremely short of ammunition. In his 1902 book, he writes, Our losses amounted to four killed and five wounded. As to the losses of the English, I myself counted 203 dead and wounded. We seized a thousand Lee Medford rifles, 20 cases of cartridges, and some baggage mills and horses. Reitz wrote, Dead and wounded lay all around, and the cries and groans of agony in the dreadful sights haunted me for many a day. For though I had seen death by violence of late, there had been nothing to approach the horrors accumulated there. Around a thousand British were taken prisoner at Nicholson's Neck, and were well treated by the Boers, who bought water and blankets for the wounded. British losses totaled over 1,200 killed, wounded, and taken prisoner, the Boers only 200. At this point, we need to assess Carlton's decision to surrender. While the Irish Fusiliers were livid, his decision in retrospect has been called correct. If they had continued to fight without reinforcements and open ground, the entire echelon of over 1,000 could have been slaughtered. Carlton could understand what Lieutenant General White could not, because from Trangula Hill, Carlton could see back to Ladysmith, and it was clear that White's attack had failed. And despite what De Vette claimed, Carlton's men were low on ammunition. The British now were in full retreat and were expecting a joint attack by the Free State and Transvaal commandos at Ladysmith itself. This never materialised. Instead, the Boers relaxed and basically had a braai, or a barbecue as it's known in South Africa. Christian de Vette explains, We stayed on the mountain until sunset and then went down to the lager. I ordered my brother, Piet de Vette, with 50 men of the Bethlehem commando to remain behind and guard the corp. 
Then the victorious Boers threw chunks of fresh meat on the spit and drank what David called a couple of stormyachers, or storm chasers, or just shots of hard liquor, and a tin of coffee. Had Louis Boerter had his way, however, the men would have been on the move towards Ladysmith at that very moment. Back in the town, the British were furiously preparing for just such an attack, trying to quickly reorganise themselves and constructing defensive lines around the town. Lieutenant General White was beside himself. It was a military disaster, and that night he wrote to his wife and said, I don't think I can go on soldiering. White telegraphed the war office in London and said, I have to report a disaster to a column sent by me to take a position in the hills. I am alone responsible for that plan. No blame whatsoever attaches to the troops, as the position was untenable. Queen Victoria herself replied via Lord Lansdowne. She said the following, I'm much distressed to hear of the sad news. We'll feel every confidence in Sir George White, although he naturally takes all the blame himself. Back in London, the reality hit home. Their Victorian sensibilities had been deeply shaken. It became known as Mournful Monday. The journals and newspapers in this real-time war were read in silence on that day, the same day as the defeat. And as one person said, few men desired speech with their neighbours. Back in South Africa, the Free State and South African Republic, or Transvaal Commandos, as they were called, held a joint council of war on the 1st of November. And it was there they decided to lay siege to Ladysmith instead of attacking. As we'll see of the course of this war, that was not a successful tactic. The Boer army was adept at mobility, fast-moving, aggressive, and the British were at that moment at their most exposed. But that's for another day. So next week, we'll shift attention back to Sir Redverse Buller, who was sitting in the Cape and deciding what action to take. Join me next week for Episode 7 of the Anglo-Boer War, or follow the discussion on Twitter at Des Latham. Oh.